So Genesis chapter 12, Abram's down there in Canaan now. What happens next? Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Well, this is God's word. You can sit down. Let's pray. Lord, give us understanding of what seems to be a very strange story. Lord, I pray that our hearts might know who we are in this story and know for certain that we are not God, that we are the sinner, Abram, in need of your redemption. So, Lord, cause us to see here the, the grace, the mercy, the beauty of your gospel. And give us repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember, but when we were studying Matthew's gospel um, a few years, oftentimes I pointed out to you that, that Matthew had only selected particular stories from Jesus' life. We didn't get a, a whole biography of Jesus' life, we got selected stories because the Gospels are not biographies. They're carefully curated for one purpose, to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew, in writing the Gospel according to Matthew, led along by the Holy Spirit, he was carefully selecting stories that showed how Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus is fulfilling those Old Testament types and prophecies. We don't get all of Jesus' life because that's not the point of the Gospels. Well, Genesis is similar. Moses, who wrote Genesis, led by the Holy Spirit, has carefully selected events in the history of the world and in in Israel's history that help to shape the worldview and the the theology of the Israelites and us. He's teaching his people who God is, what, what God is like, what God is doing in the world, what, what he will be doing in the world in the future and how God redeems and how God saves. This is a theology textbook in, in narrative form. We need to think about that then as we consider stories like this one. These stories that are included and which stories are not included. And in our text today, we have a rather unusual and an especially unflattering Story about Abram, the grandfather of the Israelites. Why is this story here? Why is this story in Genesis? And why does it come at this point in Genesis? Right after Abram's obedience. There's 
There's one really big theme here that helps us to answer that question. It's a, it's a, a main idea that is working itself out here in this text and really all throughout the Scriptures, but particularly here. And that theme, that main idea is this, our redemption is not dependent upon us. God's plan of salvation is not dependent upon Abram's righteousness or Israel's righteousness and his salvation of you and me is not dependent upon our personal righteousness. God's plan is dependent upon God's righteousness and his faithfulness to his promises. And we're going to see that today. So let's review a little bit. Uh, I kind of give you some context, especially for those of you who are visiting today. Two weeks ago, we saw the grace of God on Abram when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan there, and God called him by God's grace, by God's mercy. Last week, we saw that, that Abram's obedience to the call was the faith of Abram. Abram heard God, and he responded in faith by obeying God's call to go. Well, here in this text, what do we see happen? That faith that is so famous begins to falter, doesn't it? The question that we ask is, well, what happened? Why, 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 Abram? What happened to you? Here we were praising God that, that Abram has been given this faith to believe God and believe God's promises, and Abram is marching through Canaan, remember, and he's setting up these altars, and he's worshiping God. He hears from the Lord. He believes the Lord. He sees the Lord. And, and remember, despite all of those circumstances in Canaan, he's an old man. He's got a barren wife. There's Canaanites in the land. And yet, in hope, he believes against hope, as Paul says. It all seems to be going so well. And then for some reason, he comes up with this dishonest, selfish, spineless, faithless scheme to pawn off his wife for his own protection. So how did this happen? How did, how did we go from, from verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, that's obedience, to verse 13, say that you're my sister. Well, the key event that stands between these two seemingly different Abrams is verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. We oftentimes skip right over this one. But we are meant to see here that Abram's faith has been shaken by a trial, and the trial is this famine. Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now what land is this? It's mentioned twice. The land that God called Abram to. Go to the land I will show you. He shows him land. Here's the land. And here we are. The land that God promised to Abram's offspring. And this land is lousy. It's pretty lousy. There's a famine, and not just a famine, but a severe famine. We hear that and we think, okay, famine. But what that means, think about what this means. The seasonal rains did not fall, so the grasses didn't grow in the valleys. So there's no grazing for Abram's livestock or anyone's livestock. Crops are failing all over the country. That means families are going hungry. That means little children aren't getting enough to eat. What happens when your children don't get enough to eat and you are a dad? You, you'll go to war for them, won't you? So that means the tribes in Canaan are battling over scarce resources. It's getting dangerous to be in Canaan. A severe famine that we write, read right over is really bad news. And Abram looks around, and though he has believed God's promises so far, he's kind of beginning to doubt. It's not that he stopped believing that God exists. He saw him with his own eyes. It's, it's not that he stopped believing that God will perhaps, maybe sometime in the far, far future, fulfill those promises that we talked about last week. But in the meantime, right now, the famine has brought doubt. This trial has brought fear into Abram's heart, and that's what leads him down into Egypt. See, when Canaan, a land that depends on rains, is not getting rains, there's famine. But Egypt isn't as dependent on the rains. Egypt usually has food because Egypt is watered by the Nile. We all learned about that in fourth grade, right? 
It's watered by the Nile. So even if the rains aren't reliable, they've got the biggest river in the world coming in. You're going to see this come up again and again at the end of Genesis. This is how Joseph will later provide for his family. So somehow or another, Abram knows that Egypt is a place where he can at least survive. Maybe it's travelers coming up and down the road that have uh, told him there's food down in Egypt. So Abram heads south, goes down into Egypt. But now that that doubt worm has made its way down into his head and into his heart, the prospect of going into Egypt brings more fear, doesn't it? And here, here's the rationalization that I imagine that, that Abram's experiencing or that he has thought up. If God is having trouble bringing rain to Canaan and making this land of promise a place I can live, then it's doubtful that this God can protect me in Egypt. Egypt has different gods. Egypt has a powerful king. So if I'm going to go down to Egypt, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. Siri, or Siri from, from here on out, you're, you're going to have to pretend you're my sister or else they're going to kill me and take you. And that's kind of what sets up the story. Now I want you to think back to last week. Think back to God's promises to Abram. Verses 2 and 3. And this is the reason why Moses has written the story this way and, and, and put these two events through that I'm sure chronologically happened in history right next to each other in, in Genesis. This is a test for Abram. Will he believe those promises even through the famine and this sojourn into Egypt? Now, what are those promises? Promise one, do you remember? I will make of you a great nation. Now, let's stop right there. If God is going to make a great nation out of Abram, that means he's going to bring children to Abram. Now, does Abram have any children yet? He doesn't. So if Abram is believing God's promise, then he should be able to trust that God is going to preserve his life no matter what, at least until he has children. He can rest easy going down into Egypt. He doesn't need to scheme like this. Let's look at the next three promises, promises two, three, and four. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Three promises. Can, a can this happen if Abram is dead? It can't. Promises five and six. I will bless those who bless you and whom who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, if you remember last week, these, these two joint promises are the most functional promises in this situation going in on, in, into Egypt. This is the protection clause to God's promises to Abram. God called Abram away from his family and his tribe and his nation, that is, away from his place of protection, and he called him to an unknown place where he would be a stranger, a sojourner. But God promised to protect him there. Has God protected Abram so far? He has. It's not like his situation's changed that much. It's not like Sarai was ugly in a Canaan and then she became beautiful as they made their way into Egypt. Sarah's beauty has not created a problem yet in Canaan. If Abram believed that God would protect him, if he truly believed God's going to protect me no matter what, he could walk down into Egypt, go right into Pharaoh's house and tell him what's what, couldn't he? He has God on his side. If God is on his side, who can be against him? Abram is untouchable. That is how sure and strong God's promise of protection to Abram is. Did you see the surety of that promise? He doesn't need to scheme. He doesn't need to hand his wife over to the Egyptians so that they can have their way with her in order to protect himself. God has promised he will protect him. But does Abram believe that promise? He doesn't. Abram does not believe God's promise. His faith is faltering, isn't it? Abram trusts more in his own ideas. He trusts more in his own scheming and more in his own worldly wisdom, his street smarts, than he does in God's promise. So, so before we even begin to talk about the wickedness of his sin, and we'll get to that, we have to see that the root of all of that is unbelief. He simply doesn't believe God's promises. 
He's forgotten all that God has already done in protecting him thus far. He's already forgotten the appearance of the Lord to him. That moment when Abram responded in worship and set up an altar. And when that faith begins to fail, that's when the fear and the anxiety start to kick in that we talked about. And when the fear and anxiety take over Abram's heart, when fearfulness instead of hope becomes his operating system, that's when Abram begins to think, sinning against my wife, putting my wife at risk, is a safer bet than trusting God. Now, we look at this. We read this. I mean, Abram, you are so dumb. See, why, why can we do that? Because we have the perspective of the whole Bible. We can see into Abram's future, can't we? We know that by God's own mercy and grace toward Abram, he's already chosen Abram. He's already secured him as the one through whom the promise will come. We see the promise. We know that by God's own powerful word, he's called Abram out of paganism and rebellion against God. And that effective call has born in Abram a faith that we talk about even today. We know that God has been faithful to Abram thus far. He's brought him all the way through the Canaanite-occupied land of promise without a scratch or even so much as a threat to Abram or his wife. And because God is the one who made the promises to Abram, we, the all-seeing reader, know that God will be faithful to those promises. But Abram forgot all of those things, not because he's stupid, but because of this crisis, this famine. All he can see, his, his whole world has shrunk down to, to the crisis. It's tunnel vision, and it leads him to his scheming and his sin. This is how sin works, isn't it? When there's a trial, when there's a temptation, when we are suffering, we forget about the grace of God toward us. We forget about the promises of God. What promises? Well, promises like the resurrection hope. The resurrection hope. This, this promise that God has given us of the, the new creation that is out in front of us. We begin to believe in a crisis that this world is all that there is. So what do we do? Well, we live in the dark hope of this world. Rather than seeing with new creation eyes what God is creating already. And that earthly mindedness in, in, in the dark leads us to things like greed because we think this world is all there is. Well, we want all that we can take. It leads us to anxiety because we feel like if we're under threat in this world, well, then we begin to be, to be fearful, don't we? And what do we do? We lie and we cheat to secure our place in this world. We'll do whatever we can. Or think about the assuring promise from God that having been born again by the Spirit, we have already been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, is a new creation. Now, the old has passed away already. Behold, the new has come already. Christ on the cross has defeated the power of our flesh. Christ in his ascension has sent his spirit to us so that we already have power over sin. But what happens when we're in that crisis, during that temptation or whatever it is, we forget that, don't we? We give in to our old temptations because we don't believe the truth. We respond to difficult situations Trials, famines, with anger. We respond to trials like loneliness with lustful thoughts and bitterness. In the spirit, we've been made new. That's a promise from God. That's a truth. That's something that we can hold on to. We don't have to resort to our old way of living. And yet, when we forget God's promises, our old way is all we're left with. Now think about God's promise of forgiveness. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. But we forget that we have that gracious promise of forgiveness. And so we begin to think that we're somehow earning God's acceptance, and that leads us to look down on others. And when they don't meet our standards, 
we get very easily offended by them, don't we? And we refuse to forgive them. And we hold grudges. So we look at Abraham and go, Abram, you fool. How could you forget God's promises? And Abram from heaven looks at us. says, God's promises to you in Christ are greater than they were to me. And you forget that every day. And why do we forget it? Rather, why do we not believe what the Lord has said? Because of our trials. Because of our famines. All we can see is that threat. We forget God. We forget what he's told us. And those promises from God become less treasured to us, or we just don't believe them. And not believing God's faithfulness, when our hearts are evacuated of that heavenly-mindedness, that spiritual-mindedness, our awareness of God's surety to fulfill His promises, all we're left with without that, without the Lord, is ourselves. We begin to live as if we had not been redeemed. So then, when it's not the Spirit at the control center of our hearts, we revert to the flesh. And what are the works of the flesh? We're just reading straight through Romans here, aren't we? What are the works of the flesh? Well, the flesh does anger really well. The flesh is an expert in wrath and malice and slander and envy and lying. The flesh is very good at selfishness and scheming and treating our wives and husbands horribly. But friends, when we aren't trusting in the Lord and what He's creating us in the Spirit, then the flesh is all we are. And that's what happened to Abram. And that's what happens to us. Abram's story is a lesson to us about the root causes of our sin. Knowing then, now that we know this, knowing then the root of Abram's sin, let's examine the sin itself, the fruit of his unbelief. Let's look at it a little more closely in verse 11. So when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, let me pause here. Is it sinful, husbands, to tell your wife that she's beautiful? It's not. It's not. I should do it more often. So should you. But don't do it with Abram's motives, okay? You're beautiful, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, so beautiful. Did I tell you you were beautiful? (laughs) What I want you to do is tell them you're my sister. That way it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, we can... We can debate, because we, don't, we can't see, but we can debate over whether Abram knew what he was doing was shameful. I think he did. But regardless of what Abram knew for certain, Genesis, in, in, the, in the teaching from Moses that we've received, Genesis has already given us instruction regarding marriage. So we know what marriage is supposed to be. Right? Remember from Genesis 2? Genesis 2, God creates the woman from the man in order to be his helper, and then the man names the woman. God is establishing the husband there as the head of the household, the protector of the wife. In Genesis 2.24, that therefore statement, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cling to her, and they shall become one flesh. So Abram's not leading his wife well. We know that. He's not leading Sarah in obedience to God. He's not leading her in trusting God. His example of trusting God is horrendous here. He's certainly not holding fast to her, is he? If holding fast means anything, it means keeping her close. He's not keeping her close. Abram is doing the opposite. He's keeping her at a distance and putting that one flesh union that God made at serious risk. So, We can examine this and say, Abram is not meeting the Genesis standard for marriage. But we have more than Genesis, don't we? We know also he's not meeting God's standard revealed to us in the rest of Scriptures. Christ is God's standard. How did Christ love his wife? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Abram's asking his wife to give herself up for him. Christ, the better Abram, the ideal husband, gives himself up for the church, for you and me. That's what we saw in the garden in Matt's reading, didn't we? It's me you're after. Take me, not them. That's what Christ is doing. Take me, not the church. And how was Christ able to do that? How was Christ in the garden, going to the cross, able to give himself up for the church? Because Christ, when that trial came, that trial we talked about, when the threat of the cross loomed in front of him, Christ believed the promises of God. Psalm 16 in particular, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, always my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Going to the cross, Jesus says, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. How can he have such confidence? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the promise Jesus is looking forward to as he goes to the cross. He knew on the other side of the cross was the resurrection. And on the other side of the resurrection was the right hand of God. That was God's promise to Jesus. And Jesus believed it. Jesus believed God's promises, and so God's promises were his hope. And living in that hope, he could love the church, you and me, the way that God had always meant a husband to love his wife. So thank you, Lord. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for the faith and the faithfulness and the love of Jesus, the groom of the church, the bridegroom of the church. Abram's not Jesus, though. He did not believe God's promises, did he? So Abram, not believing God's promises, could not love his wife as Christ loved the church. Abram loves himself. Now, as Abram and Sarai are going into Egypt, I want to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. This whole situation, I want to give him this much benefit of the doubt. Okay? We can't say for certain that Abram knew that it would be Pharaoh who would want Sari. So just best case scenario, maybe, maybe Abram assumed when he got into Egypt, some other guy, some less powerful person would want Sari, and Abram could, could stall, right? So he could him and haul and make excuses and kind of negotiate with that guy about the bride price until it was time to leave Egypt, and then he would up and go with Sari, and they would be scotch-free. Maybe that's what he's thinking. But even if that was his plan, even if that was the best-case scenario he had in his tunnel vision mind, we know the motive in his heart is fear and selfishness, and he betrays that truth when he's willing to risk Sari and her well-being to ensure his own safety. So whatever Abram was hoping here in his own planning, whatever he was hoping would be the outcome of his stupid plan, the actual outcome is still within the parameters of things that can happen when you make such a stupid plan. So so what happens he should have thought of? Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, just, just as Abram suspected would happen. So his, his fears are being confirmed for him right here. And what happens, just like I thought that would happen, we do that, right, when we're in that temptation and that trial. And then we become more assured of our own stupidness at that point. And that's what's happening here. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Moses just listing everything. This is a huge list. Why? Because from a worldly perspective, this actually turns out well for Abram. Also, 
as he suspected it might. He's given a huge bride price for his sister. He's hit the jackpot. He gets rich through his dishonest scheme. So it works out for him, but, but from a, from, for his marriage, from a marriage perspective, this is terrible. Sarah's been taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, what happens to her there, we're not totally sure because Moses doesn't tell us. Sometimes when this language is used in the Old Testament, taken into, there's the assumption built into it that that, that this is a full-on conjugal relationship through and through. In some cases, though, in the Old Testament, when this same language is used, that's not the case. It could very well be that the Lord is preventing anything happening to Sarah here. He, he protected her, perhaps, from being violated by sending these plagues that we're going to see in a minute. It could also be, on the other side, though, that the plagues come as a result of adultery. We don't know for certain, but here's why I believe that Sari was protected here. In, in, in a seven more chapters, in Genesis 20, Abram, who will be Abraham by that time, will do this again. And Sarah, who will be Sarah at that time, will be protected from harm. And it's clear in the text that she's protected from harm because the Lord sends a dream to Abimelech, who is the person that Abraham is trying to pawn her off on this time. And in that dream, the Lord reveals that Sarah is Abraham's wife. And the Lord tells Abimelech, essentially, I'll kill you if you touch her. And Abimelech obeys the Lord. And then it seems in the narrative that that Sarah has remained undefiled all the way up to that point. So you have that coming that helps us at least hope that, that she's protected here. But we also have Psalm 105. And in Psalm 105, inspired by the Spirit, the psalmist says this of this era of the patriarchs in Israel's history. And this, this would include Abraham and Sarah. Psalm 105 verses 12 through 15 say this. When they, this is the, the early patriarchs, when they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. I believe that means that that's what was happening even in Pharaoh's house. Regardless, though, of what happened in the house, in the immediate, in the story, it's clear what Pharaoh's intentions are, isn't it? He's adding Sari to his harem. Sari is at risk of being violated, and Abram has clearly failed. He's failed to love his wife. He's failed to protect her. He's failed to protect his marriage. He's failed to protect the woman who will bear the offspring, the promised offspring. He's failed to protect the promise of the offspring. He's failed as a follower of the Lord. He's failed as the representative of the Lord to the nations. He's even failed to be good at sinning. If this whole plan of redemption that the Lord has in mind, if this blessing to the nations that was promised to Abram was dependent on Abram's faithfulness and his righteousness and his goodness, then the story would be over. Abram's failed. It's over. Genesis would end in verse 16. The Bible would end in verse 16. The last line of the Bible would be, Abram got all this great wealth, but the God of creation failed in his plan of redemption because of Abram's sin. Man's sin was just too great, too great for God to overcome. God wanted to redeem the world so much, oh, how he wanted to redeem the world, but he couldn't. Why? Because man's free will was too great of an obstacle for him. And and you know, when, when, when a man refuses to believe God's promises, there's nothing God can do about it. Thank God that's not the pattern of Scripture. Thank God that God is greater than that. Amen? Adam's sin... 
yet God's plan continued on. Cain sinned, God's plan continued on. Noah sinned, Ham sinned, the whole world sinned at Babel, and yet God's plan of redemption continued on. And here Abram has sinned horrifically against his wife and against the Lord, and he had put the promise of Genesis 3.15, do you remember that? He put that promise at risk that the woman will bear the offspring who crushes the serpent. That woman is now in the serpent's own hands. But Abram's sin will not stop God's plan of redemption. It cannot. Why? Because God's plan of redemption is not dependent upon Abram's perfection. It's not. God's plan of redemption is not dependent upon Abram's perfection. The Bible doesn't end in verse 16. There's a verse 17. God's unfolding plan of redemption is only dependent upon God's power. This is very good news. This is why, praise God, this is why when my faith falters or when your faith falters, he holds us fast. When the tempter would prevail, he holds us fast. Why? Because those he saves are his delight. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. Abram did everything terribly, but the Lord. This is, what, this is one of those but God statements in the Bible. And I don't know how many there are, but they're always good news. Because they always come in contrast to our stupidness. Abram has failed miserably, miserably, but the Lord, the Redeemer, the God of salvation, inserts himself into history to keep his promises. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with these great plagues. Why? Because of Sarai. Abram's wife. The Lord loves Sarah. The Lord delights in her because in her is the certain fulfillment of God's faithfulness to his own promises. In her, think about this, the Father's eternal love that has always been for the eternally begotten Son, who has always been, that love for His Son resides in Sarah's barren womb. The Lord will most certainly be faithful to Sarah, even when Abram is not. Though Abram may have abandoned her and gained all these riches at her expense, it is on her account, is because of her, because of Sarah, that the Lord plagues the entire household of Pharaoh with these great plagues. The Lord himself rescues Sarai, Abram's bride. And the language here is very personal. It's very, that word afflicted, that seems distant. That seems like something far away, like maybe this was an action, accident of nature. That word afflicted is the same word in the Hebrew for the word touched. The Lord from heaven, the, the, the way that Moses is writing this for us, we're to see the Lord from heaven is reaching out his long arm of redemption and sticking out his finger, as it were, thinking of that, 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 that painting of, of, of the Lord and, and Adam. He's doing that, but now he's touching Pharaoh. He's afflicting him. He's touching him. These plagues are not accidents of nature. This is the very intervention of the one true God. Through the Lord, trouble has come to Pharaoh, and redemption has come to the one that the Lord loves. This is interesting, isn't it? Because even though Abram failed to believe God's promise of protection, what's happening here? The Lord's protecting him anyway. The Lord, despite Abram's unbelief, fulfills his promise of protection anyway. How is that? Well, we already know. Abram's protection is not dependent upon Abram. His protection is dependent upon the Lord's faithfulness. I want you to see this. 
If there's anything you take away from this text, see this. There's so much richness in this passage. This is essential. Abram's protection is not dependent upon him. His protection is dependent upon the Lord and the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. And God's promises are not dependent upon Abram's faithfulness. Abram's protection is not dependent upon Abram. His protection is dependent upon the Lord. I'll say it a thousand times if I have to, because this is the gospel. The Lord said to Abram last week, verse 3, those who dishonor you shall be cursed. And sure enough, Pharaoh, no fault of his own, has unknowingly dishonored Abram. He's been tricked into it. No matter, the Lord is faithful to his promises. So here comes the curse. Here comes the Lord's curse on the one who has dishonored Abram. So what is Pharaoh going to do in response? He called Abram. What is this you've done to me? That's, you know, in fact, that is what the Lord said to Adam in the garden. Interesting. Here's, that was Adam's sin. Here's Abram's sin. Here's the Lord almost speaking through Pharaoh in this, at least as an echo for us as we're reading. Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. This sounds like Exodus, doesn't it? Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. That means they're going to escort you out of here. You're not coming back to Egypt. You're gone. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt. Didn't have a choice. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So he's profited from this venture. Which is another fulfillment of God's promises. Not only did the Lord protect Abram through Abram's sin and unbelief, but he blessed him just as he said he would. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will bless you. Here's the blessing. All of that ill-gotten gain Abram received when he sold his wife to Pharaoh, he gets to keep it. Now, this is not a lesson for us to go get ill-gotten gain. That's not the point. The point is God is faithful to his promises, and that is up to God and not Abram. Abram deserves to die. Abram deserves to die for what he has done to Pharaoh and to the Lord. But instead of death, he gets his wife back. He receives safe passage from Egypt. He's received immense wealth. Deserves death. And he gets all this mercy and grace. That's the story of salvation, isn't it? You see it? We're Abram, self-centered, self-absorbed, fearful, scheming, lying, failing to love our spouses, unfaithful to God, not believing his promises. The only difference between our story and Abram's story is that in our story, the plagues don't fall upon the pagan king who holds us in slavery. In our story, the plague of death falls upon the righteous king, the Christ. But even before Christ's coming, this story is an encouragement to the Israelites. This story of Abram's faithlessness is meant to be an encouragement to God's people as they reflect, as they're coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land and reflecting on what the Lord has done for them. Because the nation of Israel received Genesis. This is written for them. They're the ones who received these writings and, and they're to look back and think, well, just, just as God sent plagues to Egypt on account of Abram's bride, Sarai, he sent plagues to Egypt on account of God's bride, Israel. And just as Abram did nothing to deserve redemption out of Egypt, Israel did nothing to deserve redemption out of Egypt. God saved Abram and Sarai from Egypt because God is faithful to his promises. That's why he saved them. God saves Israel from Egypt because God is faithful to his promises. The Bible tells us so. Deuteronomy 7. Moses is speaking to Israel as they're preparing to go into the land. And he says something that is very reminiscent of this story. 
teaching them, he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you, remember he loves Sari, because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to our fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's what they're to see here. The Lord loves Abram and Sari. He's redeeming them out of Egypt. The Lord is faithful to his promises. He's redeeming them out of Egypt. And any Israelite can look at this story and go, Abram did nothing to deserve this. Just like we can look at that. This is all the Lord's work. They are to hear as they're hearing this story and they're listening to Moses teach them that whatever comes down at Deuteronomy, they're to hear from him, the Lord loves you. And he's keeping his oath. He's keeping his promises. That's how God saves. That's why God saved Abram. That's why God saved you, Israel. And that's also Del Cero, why the Lord saved you and me when he redeemed us. Not because he saw in you a perfect disciple, because he knew he would be glorified in redeeming you. His power would be shown in redeeming you. Abram needed that reminder. Israel needed that reminder. We need that reminder. But I believe that Abram got the reminder. I think he, I think he received the lesson that God had for him. Look at our last two verses. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Do you remember that last week? pitched his tent there, made an altar there. He worshiped the Lord there. That place between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. You see this at the beginning, at the first. Moses is showing us he's going back to the beginning, back to square one. He's physically, geographically going back to where that last place he remembers being in right relationship with God. That's what Abram's doing. Before his faith began to falter, going back to where his faith was confirmed by God visibly when he saw the Lord. He's going back to the start. Think, think about the way that Moses is telling us this story. Abram's going up from Egypt. He's escaped from Egypt by the, by the skin of his teeth. And he could go anywhere in Canaan. He might even be tempted, I might be tempted to go hide in a cave somewhere, thinking that maybe just maybe Pharaoh's going to come back at me and get all that stuff. Because he, I mean, it's his stuff. But he chooses this place between Bethel and Ai, this altar, sacrifice, and worship. That's what you do at altars. You sacrifice. You, you atone for your sins at altars. And that's where he goes, this place of sacrifice and worship. And Moses doesn't say, and Abram repented of his sins, does he? He doesn't tell us that. But even though Moses doesn't tell us that, he's painting a picture of repentance. You actually don't see the word repentance in the Old Testament until you get all the way to 1 Kings. And yet there's a lot of repentance happening in the Old Testament before 1 Kings. We're seeing here a picture of repentance. Abram has turned back. That's what repentance is, to turn back towards. With a heart of unbelief, he went down into Egypt. If you look at the language, there was a famine, so Abram went down into Egypt. So Moses is giving us these cues. He went down into Egypt, down into his sin, and the Lord has been merciful to Abram. The Lord has been faithful to Abram despite Abram's sin, and the Lord rescued Abram and his wife. And as a result of God's redeeming work, Abram has turned from facing down south to north. He's turned, he's come back up, and he's come back to the place of worship. That's what happens when we turn from our sin. When we turn from our sin and come back to God, that's what Abram's doing, we call that repentance. So I believe Abram got the message. Abram, this was never about you. 
This was about my faithfulness to you. But Abram, you failed to believe my promises. Abram gets the message, and he repents. And what does he do there? Verse 4, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. That's, that, that is all-inclusive, if you remember from way back, Genesis chapter 5, when we saw that phrase, or at the end of chapter 4. That's all-inclusive of worshiping the Lord. That includes making sacrifices for the atonement of sin. That includes praying to the Lord. That includes singing to the Lord. That includes pronouncing, proclaiming the Lord's work. He's calling upon the name of the Lord. So here's the arc of the story. Abram goes from faith to fear and doubt to sin. And when he is in the depths of his sin, helpless, completely helpless to fix his situation, he can't get his wife back on his own. We know that. What happens? God has mercy on him. God has mercy on Abram. God is faithful to his promises. God has mercy on Abram and Sarah, and he redeems them and leads Abram back to that place of worship. By the grace of God, Abram's faith is restored. The Lord has held on to Abram just as the Lord holds on to all of his children. So if you're a Christian, this is an encouragement to you. If you have failed to believe God's promises, know that the Lord right now is leading you to repentance and faith. If you're not a Christian, because you feel like you're not good enough to be a Christian, and that's often the excuse, I'm not good enough. I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I can't be as good as the rest of these church people are. Well, you need to get to know us, first of all. <laughs> but I can assure you, Abram was not good enough. That is clear from this text, isn't it? How much, how much more wicked could he be? Abram was not good enough. Abram is not worthy of God's call to believe in God's promises. None of us are. The call to repent and believe the gospel is not a call to a life of perfection. The call to repent and believe the gospel, the promises of the gospel, that call is a call to a life of repentance and faith. And that's the picture we see here. Repentance and a return to the Lord in faith. So let's praise God for his sovereignty over our salvation, can we?